Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Volume 6, Chapter 19, The Deadly Jest of Dillsburg We made the port of Neckarsteinach in good season and went to the hotel and ordered a trout dinner. The same to be ready against our return from a two-hour pedestrian excursion to the village in the castle of Dillsburg, a mile distant, on the other side of the river. I do not mean that we proposed to be two hours making two miles. No, we meant to employ most of that time in inspecting Dillsburg. For Dillsburg is a quaint place. It is most quaintly and picturesquely situated. Imagine the beautiful river before you. Then a few rods of brilliant green sward on the opposite shore. Then a sudden hill. No preparatory gently rising slopes, but sort of an instantaneous hill. A hill of 250 or 300 feet. As round as a bowl, with the same taper upward that an inverted bowl has, and with about the same relation of height to diameter that distinguishes a bowl of good honest depth a hill which is thickly clothed with green bushes, a comely, shapely hill rising abruptly out of the dead level of the surrounding green plains, visible from a good distance down the bends of the river, and with just exactly room from the top of its head for a steepled and turreted and roof-clustered cap of architecture, which same is tightly jammed and compacted within the perfectly round hoop of the ancient village wall. There was no house outside the wall on the whole hill, or any vestige of a former house. All the houses are inside the wall, but there isn't room for another one. It really is a finished town, and has been finished for a very long time. There is no space between the wall and the first circle of buildings. No, the village wall is itself the rear wall of the first circle of buildings and the roofs jut a little over the wall and thus furnish it with eaves. The general level of the massed roofs is gracefully broken and relieved by the dominating towers of the ruined castle and the tall spires of a couple of churches. So from a distance, Dillsburg has rather more the look of a king's crown than a cap. That lofty green eminence and its quaint coronet form quite a striking picture, you may be sure in the flush of the evening sun. We crossed over in a boat and began the ascent by a narrow, steep path which plunged us at once into the leafy deeps of the bushes. But they were not cool deeps by any means, for the sun's rays were weltering hot and there was little or no breeze to temper them. As we panted up the sharp ascent, we met brown, bareheaded, and barefooted boys and girls, sometimes men. They came upon us without warning. They gave us good day, flashed out of sight in the bushes, and were gone as suddenly and mysteriously as they had come. They were bound for the other side of the river to work. This path had been traveled by many generations of people. They have always gone down to the valley to earn their bread. But they have always climbed their hill again to eat and sleep in their snug town. It is said that Dillsburgers do not emigrate much. They find that living up there above the world in their peaceful nest is pleasanter than living down in the troublous world. 
The 700 inhabitants are all blood kin to each other. They have always been blood kin to each other for 1,500 years. They are simply one large family, and they like the home folks better than they like strangers. Hence, they persistently stay at home. It has been said that for ages, Dillsburg has been merely a thriving and diligent idiot factory. I saw no idiots there. But the captain said, Because of late years, the government has taken to lugging them off to asylums and elsewhere. The government wants to cripple the factory too, and is trying to get these Dillbergers to marry out of the family, but they don't like to. The captain probably imagined all this, as modern science denies that intermarrying a relative deteriorates the stock. Arrived within the walls, we found the usual village sights and life. We moved along a narrow, crooked lane which has been paved in the Middle Ages. A strapping, running girl was beating flax or some such stuff in a little bit of a good box of a barn, and she swung her flail with a will if it was a flail. I'm not a farmer, and I don't know enough to know what she was at. A frowsy, bare-legged girl was herding a half-dozen geese with a stick, driving them along the lane and keeping them out of the dwellings. A cooper was at work in a shop, which I know he did not make so large a thing as a hogshead in, for there was not room. In the front rooms of dwellings, girls and women were cooking or spinning, and ducks and chickens were waddling in and out over the thresholds, picking up chance crumbs and holding pleasant converse. A very old and wrinkled man sat asleep before his door with his chin upon his breast and his extinguished pipe in his lap. Soiled children were playing in the dirt everywhere along the lane, unmindful of the sun. Except for the sleeping old man, everybody was at work, but the place was very still and peaceful nevertheless, so still that the distant cackle of the successful hen smote upon the ear but little dulled by intervening sounds. The commonest of village sites was lacking here, the public pump, with its great stone tank or trough of limpid water and its group of gossiping pitch-bearers. There is no well or fountain or spring on this tall hill. Cisterns of rainwater are used. Our alpenstocks and muslin tails compelled attention, and as we moved through the village we gathered a considerable procession of little boys and girls, and so went in some state to the castle. It proved to be an extensive pile of crumbling walls and arches and towers, massive, properly grouped for picturesque effect, weedy, grass-grown, and satisfactory. The children acted as guides. They walked us along the top of the highest walls, then took us up into a high tower and showed us a wide and beautiful landscape made up of wavy distances of woody hills and a nearer prospect of undulating expanses of green lowlands on the one hand and castle-graced crags and ridges on the other, with the shining curves of the Neckar flowing in between. But the principal show, the chief pride of the children, was the ancient and empty well in the grass-grown court of the castle. The massive stone curb stands up three or four feet above the ground and is whole and uninjured, 
The children said that in the Middle Ages this well was 400 feet deep and furnished all the village with an abundant supply of water in war and peace. They said that in the old days its bottom was below the level of the Neckar, hence the water supply was inexhaustible. But there were some who believed it had never been a well at all and was never deeper than it was now, some 80 feet. But at that depth, the subterranean passage branched from it and descended gradually to a remote place in the valley where it opened into somebody's cellar or other hidden recess, and that the secret of this locality is now lost. Those who hold this belief say that herein lies the explanation that Dillsburg, besieged by Tilly and many a soldier before him, was never taken. After the longest and closest sieges, the besiegers were astonished to perceive that the besieged were as fat and hearty as ever and were well furnished with munitions of war. Therefore, it was thought that the Dillsburgers had been bringing these things in through the subterranean passage all that time. The children said there was in truth a subterranean outlet down there, and they would prove it. So they set a great truss of straw on fire and threw it down the well, while we leaned on the curb and watched the glowing mass descend. It struck bottom and gradually burned out. No smoke came up, though. The children clapped their hands and said, You see, nothing makes so much smoke as burning straw. And where did the smoke go if there's no subterranean outlet? So it seemed quite evident that the subterranean outlet indeed did exist. But the finest thing within the ruins' limits was a noble linden, which the children said was four hundred years old, and I had little doubt about it. It had a mighty trunk and a mighty spread of limb and foliage. The limbs near the ground were nearly the thickness of a barrel. That tree had witnessed the assaults of men and male. How remote that time seems, and how ungraspable is the fact that real men ever did fight in real armor, and it had seen the time when these broken arches and crumbling battlements were a trim and strong and stately fortress, fluttering its gay banners in the sun and peopled with vigorous humanity. How impossibly long ago that seemed. And here it stands yet, and possibly may still be standing here, sunning itself and dreaming its historical dreams, when today shall have been joined to the days called ancient. Well, we sat down under the tree to smoke, and the captain delivered himself of this legend. The Legend of Dillsburg Castle In the old times there was once a great company assembled at the castle, and festivity ran high. Of course, there was a haunted chamber in the castle, and one day the talk fell upon that. It was said that whoever slept in it would not wake again for fifty years. Now, when a young knight named Conrad von Giesberg heard this, he said that if the castle were his, he would destroy that chamber, so that no foolish person might have taken the chance to bring so dreadful a misfortune upon himself and afflict such as loved him with the memory of it. Straight away, the company privately laid their heads together to contrive some way to get this superstitious young man to sleep in the chamber, and they succeeded in this way. They persuaded his betrothed, a lovely, mischievous young creature, niece of the lord of the castle, to help them in their plot. 
She presently took him aside and had speech with him. She used all her persuasions, but could not shake him. He said his belief was firm, and that if he should sleep there, he would wake no more for fifty years. She began to weep. This was a better argument. Conrad could not hold out against it. He yielded and said she should have her wish if she would only smile and be happy again. She flung her arms around his neck, and the kisses she gave him showed that she was thankful, and that her pleasure was very real. Then she flew to tell the company her success, and the applause she received made her glad and proud she had undertaken her mission, since all alone she had accomplished what the multitude had failed to do. At midnight, that night, after the usual feasting, Conrad was taken to the haunted chamber and left there. He fell asleep, by and by. When he awoke again and looked about him, his heart stood still with horror. The whole aspect of the chamber had changed. The walls were moldy and hung with cobwebs. The curtains and bedding were rotten, the furniture rickety and ready to fall to pieces. He sprang out of bed, but his quaking knees sunk under him and he fell to the floor. This is just the weakness of age, he said. He rose and sought his clothing, but it was clothing no longer. The colors were gone, and the garments gave way to many pieces while he was putting them on. He fled, shuddering into the corridor and along it to the great hall. Here he was met by a middle-aged stranger of a kind countenance who stopped and gazed at him with surprise. And Conrad said, Good sir, will you send hither the Lord Ulrich? The stranger looked puzzled a moment and then said, The Lord Ulrich? Yes, if you be so good. The stranger called Wilhelm, and a young serving man came, and the stranger said to him, Is there a Lord Ulrich among the guests? I know none of the names, so please, your honor. Conrad said hesitatingly, I did not mean a guest, but the Lord of the castle, sir. The stranger and the servant exchanged wondering glances, and the former said, I am the lord of the castle. Since when, sir? Since the death of my father, the good lord Ulrich, more than forty years ago. Conrad sank upon a bench and covered his face with his hands, while he rocked his body to and fro and moaned. The stranger said in a low voice to the servant, I fear me this poor old creature is mad. Call someone. In a moment several people came and grouped themselves about, talking in whispers. Conrad looked up and scanned the faces about him wistfully. Then he shook his head and said in a grieved tone, No, there is none among ye that I know. I am old and alone in the world. They are dead and gone many years that cared for me. But sure, some of these aged ones I see about me can tell me some little word or two concerning them. Several bent and tottering men and women came near and answered his questions about each former friend as he mentioned the name. This one, they said, had been dead ten years, that one twenty, another thirty. Each succeeding blow struck heavier and heavier. At last the sufferer said, There is one more I have not the courage to. Oh, my lost Katharina! One of the old dames said, Ah, I knew her well, poor soul. A misfortune overtook her lover, and she died in sorrow nearly fifty years ago. She lieth under the linden tree, outside of the court. 
Conrad bowed his head and said, Oh, why did I ever awake? And so she died of grief from me, poor child. So young and sweet, so good, she never wittingly did a hurtful thing in all the little summer of her life. Her loving debt shall be repaid, for I will die of grief for her. His head drooped upon his breast, and in a moment there was a wild burst of joyous laughter. A pair of round young arms were flung around Conrad's neck, and a sweet voice cried, There, Conrad mine, thy kind words kill me. The farce shall go no further. Look up and laugh with us. And gazed in a dazed wonderment, for the disguises were stripped away, and the aged men and women were bright and young and gay again. Katharina's happy tongue ran on. "'Twas a marvelous jest, and bravely carried out. They gave you a heavy sleeping draught before you went to bed, and in the night they bore you to a ruined chamber where all had fallen to decay, and placed these rags of clothing by you. And when your sleep was spent, you came forth. Two strangers, well instructed in their parts, were here to meet you. And all we, your friends, and our disguises were close at hand to see and hear you, you may be sure. Ah, twas a gallant jest. Come on now, and make thee ready for the pleasures of the day. How real was your misery for the moment, thou poor lad. Look up and have thy laugh now. He looked up and searched the merry faces about him in a dreamy way and then sighed and said, I am weary, good strangers. I pray you lead me to her grave. All the smiles vanished away. Every cheek blanched. Katharina sunk to the ground in a swoon. All day the people went about the castle with troubled faces and communed together in undertones. A painful hush pervaded the place, which had lately been so full of cheery life. Each in his turn tried to arouse Conrad out of his hallucination and bring him back to himself. But all the answer anybody got was a meek and bewildered stare and the words, Good stranger, I have no friends. All are at rest these many years. Ye speak me fair. Ye mean we well. But I know ye not. I am alone and forlorn in the world. Prithee, lead me to her grave. During two years Conrad spent his days, from the early morning till night, under the linden tree, mourning over the imaginary grave of his Katharina, Katharina was the only company of the harmless madman. He was very friendly toward her because, as he said in some way, she reminded him of his Katharina, whom he had lost fifty years before. And he often said, She was so gay, so happy-hearted, but you never smile, and always when you think I am not looking, you seem to be crying. When Conrad died, they buried him under the linden tree according to his directions, so he might rest near his poor Katharina. Then Katharina sat under the linden tree alone every day, and all day long, and a great many years, speaking to no one, and never smiling, and at last her long repentance was rewarded with death, and she was buried by Conrad's side. Harris pleased the captain by saying it was a good legend, and pleased him further by adding, now that I've seen this mighty tree, vigorous with its four hundred years, I feel a desire to believe the legend for its sake, 
so I will humor the desire and consider that the tree really watches over those poor hearts and feels a sort of human tenderness for them. We returned to Neckarsteinach and plunged our hot heads into the trough of the town pump, then went to the hotel and ate our trout dinner in leisurely comfort. We ate our dinner in the garden with the beautiful Neckar flowing at our feet, the quaint Dillsburg looming beyond and the graceful towers and battlements of a couple of medieval castles called the Swallow's Nest and the Brothers, assisting the rugged scenery of a bend of the river down to our right. We got to sea in season to make the eight-mile run to Heidelberg before the night shut down. We sailed by the hotel in the mellow glow of a sunset and came slashing down with the mad current into the narrow passage between the dikes. I believed I could shoot the bridge myself and went to the forward triplet of logs and relieved the pilot of his pole and his responsibility. We went tearing along in a most exhilarating way, and I performed the delicate duties of my office very well, indeed for a first attempt. But perceiving presently that I was really going to shoot the bridge itself instead of the archway underneath it, I judiciously stepped ashore. The next moment I had my long-coveted desire. I saw a raft wrecked. It hit the pier in the center and went all to smash and scatteration, like a box of matches struck by lightning. I was the only one of the party who saw this grand sight. The others were attitudinizing for the benefit of a long rank of young ladies who were promenading on the bank, and so they lost it. But I helped to fish them out of the river and down below the bridge, and then described it to them as well as I could. They weren't interested, though. They said they were wet and felt ridiculous and did not care anything for descriptions of scenery. The young ladies and the other people crowded around and showed a great deal of sympathy. But that did not help matters, for my friends said they did not want sympathy. They wanted a back alley and solitude. Chapter 20 My Precious, Priceless Tear Jug The next morning brought good news. Our trunks had arrived from Hamburg at last. Let this be a warning to the reader. The Germans are very conscientious, and this trait makes them very particular. Therefore, if you tell a German you want a thing done immediately, he takes you at your word. He thinks you mean what you say. So he does that thing immediately, according to his idea of immediately, which is about a week. That is, it is a week if it refers to the building of a garment, or it is an hour and a half if it refers to the cooking of a trout. Very well. If you tell a German to send your trunk to you by slow freight, he takes you at your word, and he sends it by slow freight. And you cannot imagine how long you will go on enlarging your admiration of the expressiveness of that phrase in the German tongue before you get that trunk. The hair on my trunk was soft and thick and youthful when I got it ready for shipment in Hamburg. It was bald-headed when it reached Heidelberg, However, it was still sound, and that was a comfort. It was not battered in the least. The baggage men seemed to be conscientiously careful in Germany of the baggage entrusted to their hands. There was nothing now in the way of our departure, therefore, and we set about our preparations. Naturally, my chief solicitude was about my collection of ceramics. Of course, I could not take it with me. That would be inconvenient. 
and dangerous besides. I took advice, but the best bric-a-brackers were divided as to the wisest course to pursue. Some said pack the collection and warehouse it. Others said try to get it into the Grand Ducal Museum at Mannheim for safekeeping. So I divided the collection and followed the advice of both parties. I set aside for the museum those articles which were the most frail and precious. Among them was my Etruscan tear jug. I have made a little sketch of it here, and that thing creeping down the side is not a bug, it is a hole. I bought this tear jug of a dealer in antiquities for $450. It is very rare. The man said the Etruscans used to keep tears or something in these things, and that it was very hard to get hold of a broken one now. I also set aside my Henry II plate. See sketch from my pencil. It is in the main correct, though I think I have foreshortened one end of it a little too much, perhaps. It is very fine and rare. The shape is exceedingly beautiful and unusual. It has wonderful decorations on it, but I am not able to reproduce them. It cost more than the tear jug, as the dealer said there was not another plate like it in the world. He said there was much false Henry II around, but that the genuineness of this piece was unquestionable. He showed me its pedigree, or its history, if you please. It was a document which traced this plate's movement all the way down from its birth, showed who bought it from whom and what he paid for it, from the first buyer down to me, whereby I saw that it had gone steadily up from 35 cents to $700. He said the whole ceramic world would be informed that it was now in my possession and would make a note of it with price paid. There were masters in those days, but alas, it is not so now. Of course, the main preciousness of this piece lies in its color. It is that old, sensuous, pervading, ramifying, interpolating, transboreal blue, which is the despair of modern art. The little sketch which I have made of this gem cannot and does not do it justice, since I have obliged to leave out the color, but I've got the expression right. However, I must not be frittering away the reader's time with these details. I did not intend to go into any detail at all at first, but it is the failing of the true ceramicer or the true devotee in any department of bric-a-brackery, that once he gets his tongue or his pen started on his darling theme, he cannot well stop until he drops from exhaustion. He has no more sense of the flight of time than he has any other lover when talking of his sweetheart. The very marks on the bottom of a piece of rare crockery are able to throw me into gibbering ecstasy. And I could forsake a drowning relative to help dispute about whether the stopple of a departed Buon retiree scent bottle was genuine or spurious. Many people say that for a male person, bric-a-brac hunting is about as robust a business as making doll clothes or decorating Japanese pots with Delcomania butterflies. And these people fling mud at the elegant Englishman, Bing, who wrote a book called The Bric-a-Brac Hunter, and made fun of him for chasing around after what they choose to call his despicable trifles, and for gushing over these trifles, and for exhibiting his deep infantile delight in what they call his tuppenny collection of beggarly trivialities and for beginning his book with a picture of himself seated in a sappy, self-complacent attitude in the midst of his poor, little, ridiculous, 
bric-a-brac junk shop. It is easy to say these things. It is easy to revile us, easy to despise us. Therefore, let these people rail on. They cannot feel as Bing and I feel. It is their loss, not ours. For my part, I am content to be a bric-a-bracker and a ceramicer. More, I am proud to be so named. I am proud to know that I lose my reason as immediately in the presence of a rare jug with an illustrious mark on the bottom of it, as if I had just emptied that jug. Very well, I packed and stored a part of my collection, and the rest of it I placed in the care of the Grand Ducal Museum in Nanheim. My permission. My old blue china cat remains there yet. I presented it to that excellent institution. I had but one misfortune with my things. An egg, which I had kept back from breakfast that morning, was broken in packing. It was a great pity. I had shown it to the best connoisseurs in Heidelberg, and they had all said it was an antique. We spent a day or two in farewell visits and then left for Baden-Baden. We had a pleasant trip to it, for the Rhine Valley is always lovely. The only trouble was the trip was too short. If I remember rightly, it only occupied a couple of hours. Therefore, I judged that the distance was very little, if any, over fifty miles. We quit the train at Oos and walked the remaining distance to Baden-Baden. With the exception of a lift of less than an hour, which we got on a passing wagon, the weather being exhaustingly warm, we came into town on foot. One of the first people we encountered as we walked up the street was Reverend Mister an old friend from America, a lucky encounter indeed, for he is a most gentle, refined, and sensitive nature, and his company and companionship are genuine refreshment. We knew he had been in Europe some time, but were not at all expecting to run across him. Both parties burst forth into loving enthusiasms, and Reverend Mister said, I've got a brimful of reservoir talk to pour out on you, and an empty one ready and thirsting to receive what you have got. We will sit up till midnight and have a good satisfying interchange, for I leave here early in the morning. We agreed to that, of course. I had been vaguely conscious for a while of a person who had been walking in the street abreast us. I glanced furtively at him once or twice and noticed that he was a fine, large, vigorous young fellow with an open, independent countenance, faintly shaded with a pale and even almost imperceptible crop of early down and that he was clothed from head to heel in cool and enviable snow-white linen. I thought I had also noticed that his head had a sort of listening tilt to it. Now, about this time, the Reverend Mister said, The sidewalk is hardly wide enough for three, so I will walk behind. But keep the talk going, keep the talk going. There's no time to lose, and you may be sure I will do my share. He ranged himself beside us and straightway that stately snow-white young fellow closed up the sidewalk alongside him, fetched him a cordial slap on the shoulder with his broad palm, and sung out with a hearty cheerfulness. Americans? For two and a half and the money up, hey? The Reverend winced, but said mildly, Yes, we are Americans. Lord love you. You can just bet that's what I am every time. Put it there. He held out his Sahara of a palm, and the reverend laid his diminutive hand in it and got so cordial a shake that we heard his glove burst under it. 
Say, didn't I put you up right? Oh, yes. Show spotted you from my kind the minute I heard your clack. You been over here long? About four months. Have you been here long? Long? Well, I should say so. Going on two years by Jiminy. Say, are you homesick? No, I can't say that I am. Are you? Oh, hell yeah! This with immense enthusiasm. The Reverend shrunk a little in his clothes, and we were aware, rather by instinct than otherwise, that he was throwing out signals of distress to us. But we did not interfere or try to succor him, for we were quite happy. The young fellow hooked his arm into the Reverend's now, and with the confiding and graceful air of a waif who has been longing for a friend and a sympathetic ear, and a chance to lisp once more the sweet accents of mother tongue, and then limbered up the muscles of his mouth and turned himself loose. And with such a relish, some of his words were not Sunday school words, so I am obliged to put blanks where they occur. Yes, indeedy. If I ain't an American, there ain't any Americans, that's all. When I heard you fellas gassing away in the good old American language, I'll be damned if it wasn't all I could do to keep from hugging you. My mother tongue's all warped with trying to curl around these forsaken, wind-galled, non-jointed German words here. Now I tell you, it's awful good to lay it over a Christian word once more and kind of let the old taste soak it in. I'm from western New York. My name is Charlie Adams. I'm a student, you know. Been here going on two years. I'm learning to be a horse doctor. I like that part of it, you know, but these damn people. They won't learn a fellow in his own language. They make him learn German. So before I could tackle the horse doctrine, I had to tackle this miserable language. First off, I thought it would certainly give me the bots, but I don't mind now. I've got it where the hair's short, I think. And don't you know, they made me learn Latin too. Now between you and me, I don't give a damn for all the Latin that was ever jabbered. And the first thing I calculate to do when I get through is to just sit down and forget it. Wouldn't take long neither, and I don't mind the time anyway. And I tell you what, the difference between school teaching over yonder and school teaching over here, ho ho, we don't know anything about it. You've got to peg and peg and peg, and there just ain't any let up. And what you know here, you've got to know, don't you know, or else you'll have one of these spivins, spectacled, bone-ringed, not-need-old professors in your hair. I've been here long enough, and I'm telling you, Bliss, and tired of it. Mind I tell you, the old man wrote me that he was coming over in June, said he'd take me home in August, whether I was done with my education or not. But darn him, he didn't come. Never said why, just sent me a hamper of Sunday school books and told me to be good and hold on a while. I don't take to Sunday school books, don't you know? I don't hanker after them when I can get pie, but I read them anyway, because whatever the old man tells me to do, that's the thing I'm going to do. Or tear something, you know? I buckled in and read all those books because he wanted me to. But that kind of thing don't excite me. I really like something hearty. But I'm awful homesick. I'm homesick from ear socket to crupper. And from crupper to hock joint. But it ain't any use. I've got to stay here till the old man drops the rag and gives me the word. Yes, sir, right here in this country. i got to linger till the old man says come. And you bet your bottom dollar, Johnny, it ain't just as easy as it is for a cat to have twins. At the end of this profane and cordial explosion, he fetched a prodigious, 
whoosh to relieve his lungs and make recognition of the heat. And then he straightaway dived into his narrative again for Johnny's benefit, beginning, Well, it ain't any use talking. Some of those old American words do have a kind of bully swing to them. A man can express himself with them. A man can get at what he wants to say, don't you know? When we reached the hotel, and it seemed that he was about to lose the reverend, he showed so much sorrow and begged so hard and so earnestly that the reverend's heart was not hard enough to hold out against the pleadings. So he went away with the parent-honoring student like a right Christian and took supper with him at his lodgings and sat in the surf beat of his slang and profanity till near midnight and then left him. Left him pretty well talked out, I imagine, but grateful, clear down to his frogs, as he expressed it. The Reverend said it had transpired during the interview that Charlie, Adam's father, was an extensive dealer in horses in western New York. That accounted for Charlie's choice of profession. The Reverend brought away a pretty high opinion of Charlie as a manly young fellow with stuff in him for a useful citizen. He considered him rather a rough gem, but a gem nonetheless. Chapter 21 Insolent Shopkeepers and Gabbling Americans Baden-Baden sits in the lap of the hills, and the natural and artificial beauties of the surroundings are combined effectively and charmingly. The level strip of ground that stretches through and beyond the town is laid out in handsome pleasure grounds, shaded by noble trees and adorned at intervals with lofty and sparkling fountain jets. Thrice a day a fine band makes music in the public promenade before the conversation house, and in the afternoon and evening that locality is populous with fashionably dressed people of both sexes, who march back and forth past the great music stand and look ever so bored, though they make a show of feeling otherwise. Seems like a rather aimless and stupid existence, and a good many of these people are there for a real purpose, however. They are racked with rheumatism, and they are there to stew it out in the hot baths. These invalids look melancholy enough, limping about on their canes and crutches, and apparently brooding over all sorts of cheerless things. People say that Germany, with her damp stone houses, is the home of rheumatism. If that's so, Providence must have foreseen that it would be so, and therefore filled the land with the healing baths. Perhaps no other country is so generously supplied with medicinal springs as Germany. Some of these baths are good for one ailment, some for another, and again peculiar ailments are conquered by combining the individual virtues of several different baths. For instance, for some forms of disease, the patient drinks the native hot water of Baden-Baden with a spoonful of salt from the Carlsbad springs dissolved in it. That is not a dose to be forgotten right away, let me tell you. They don't sell this hot water. No, you go into the great Trinkhalle and stand around, first on one foot and then on the other, while two or three young girls sit pottering at some sort of ladylike sewing work in your neighborhood and can't seem to see you, polite as three-dollar clerks in a government office. By and by, one of them raises painfully and stretches, stretches fists and body heavenward, till she seems to raise her heels from the floor, at the same time refreshing herself with a yawn of such comprehensiveness that the bulk of her face disappears behind her upper lip, 
and one is able to see how she is constructed inside. Then she slowly closes her cavern, brings down her fists and heels, comes languidly forward and contemplates you, contemptuously, draws you a glass of hot water, and sets it down where you can get it by reaching for it. You take it and say, How much? And she returns you with an elaborate indifference. A beggar's answer. Not believe. Whatever you please. This thing of using the common beggar's trick and the common beggar's shibboleth to put you on your liberality when you are expecting a simple, straightforward commercial transaction adds a little to your prospering sense of irritation. You ignore her reply and ask again, How much? And she calmly and differently repeats, Not believe it. You are getting angry now, but you are trying not to show it. You resolve to keep on asking your question until she changes her answer, or at least her annoying indifferent manner. Therefore, if your case be like mine, you two fools standing there, and without perceptible emotion of any kind, or any kind of emphasis on any syllable, you look blandly into each other's eyes and hold the following idiotic conversation. How much? Not believe How much? Not believe How much? Not believe How much? Not believe I do not know what another person would have done, but at this point, I gave up. That cast-iron indifference, that tranquil contemptuousness conquered me, and I struck my colors. Now I knew she was used to receiving about a penny from many people who cared nothing about the opinions of scullery maids and about tuppence for moral cowards. But I laid a silver twenty-five-cent piece within her reach and tried to shrivel her up with this sarcastic speech. If it isn't enough, will you stoop sufficiently from your official dignity to say so? She did not shrivel. Without deigning to look at me at all, she languidly lifted the coin and bit it to see if it was good. Then she turned her back and placidly waddled to her former roost again, tossing the money into an open till as she went along. She was the victor to the last, you see. I have enlarged upon the ways of this girl because they are typical. Her manners are the manners of a goodly number of Baden-Baden shopkeepers. The shopkeeper there swindles you if he can and insults you whether he succeeds in swindling you or not. The keepers of baths also take great and patient pains to insult you. The frowsy woman who sat at the desk in the lobby of the great Friedrichsbad and sold bath tickets not only insulted me twice every day with her rigid fidelity to her great trust, but she took trouble enough to cheat me out of a shilling one day to have fairly entitled her to ten. Baden-Baden's splendid gamblers are gone. Only her microscopic names remain. An English gentleman who had been living there several years said, If you could disguise your nationality, you would not find any insolence here. These shopkeepers detest the English and despise the Americans. They are rude to both, more especially to ladies of your nationality and mine. If these go shopping without a gentleman or a man-servant, they are tolerably sure to be subjected to petty insolences, insolences of manner and tone, rather than word, though words that are hard to bear are not always wanting. 
I know of an instance where a shopkeeper tossed a coin back to an American lady with the remark, snappishly uttered, We don't take French money here. I know of a case where an English lady said to one of these shopkeepers, Don't you think you asked too much for this article? And he replied with the question, Do you think you are obliged to buy it? However, these people are not impolite to Russians or Germans. As to rank, they worship that, for they have long been used to generals and nobles. If you wish to see what abysses servility can descend to, present yourself before a Baden-Baden shopkeeper in the character of a Russian prince. It is an inane town, filled with sham and petty fraud, and snobbery, but the baths are good. I spoke with many people, and they were all agreed in that. I've had the twinges of rheumatism unceasingly during the last three years, but the last one departed after a fortnight's bath there. I have never had one since. I fully believe I left my rheumatism in Baden-Baden. Baden-Baden is welcome to it. It was a little, but it was all I had to give. I would have preferred to leave something that was catching, but that was not in my power. There were several hot springs there, and during two thousand years they have poured forth a never-diminishing abundance of healing water. This water is conducted in pipe to the numerous bathhouses, and is reduced to an endurable temperature by the addition of cold water. The new Friedrichsbad has a very large and beautiful building, and in it one may have any sort of bath one has ever invented, and with all the additions of herbs and drugs that his ailment may need, or that the physician of the establishment may consider a useful thing to put into the water. You go there, enter the great door, get a bow graduated to your style in clothes from the gorgeous porter, and a bath ticket, and an insult from the frowsy woman for a quarter. She strikes a bell, and a serving man conducts you down a long hall, and shuts you into a commodious room which has a washstand, a mirror, a boot jack, and a sofa in it, and there you undress at your leisure. The room is divided by a great curtain. You draw this curtain aside and find a large white marble bathtub with its rims sunk to the level of the floor, and with three white marble steps leading down to it. The tub is full of water which is clear as crystal and is tempered to 28 degrees ramor about 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Sunk into the floor by the tub is a covered copper box which contains some warm towels and a sheet. You look fully as white as an angel when you are stretched out in that limpid bath. You remain in it for 10 minutes the first time and afterwards increase the duration from day to day till you reach 25 to 30 minutes. There you stop. The appointments of the place are so luxurious, the benefits so marked, the price so moderate, and the insults so sure, that you very soon find yourself adoring the Friedrichsbad and infesting it. We had a plain, simple, unpretending good hotel in Baden-Baden, the Hotel de France, and alongside my room I had a giggling, cackling, chattering family who always went to bed just two hours after me and always got up two hours ahead of me. But this is common in German hotels. The people generally go to bed long after eleven and get up long before eight. The partitions convey sound like a drumhead.
and everybody knows it. But no matter a German family, who are all kindness and consideration in the daytime, make apparently no effort to moderate their noises for your benefit at night. They will sing, laugh, talk loudly, and bang furniture around in a most pitiless way. If you knock on your wall appealingly, they will quiet down and discuss the matter softly among themselves, for a moment. Then, like the mice, they fall to persecuting you again, and as vigorously as before. They keep cruelly late and early hours for such noisy folk. Of course, when one begins to find fault with foreign people's ways, he is very likely to get a reminder to look nearer to home before he gets far with it. I open my notebook to see if I can find some more information of a valuable nature about Baden-Baden, and the first thing I fall upon is this. Baden-Baden, no date. Lot of vociferous Americans at breakfast this morning, talking at everybody while pretending to talk among themselves. On their first travels, manifestly, showing off, the usual signs, airy, easy-going references to grand distances and foreign places. Well, goodbye, old fellow. If I don't run across you in Italy, you hunt me up in London before you sail. The next item which I find in my notebook is this one. The fact that a band of 6,000 Indians are now murdering our frontiersmen at their impudent leisure, and that we are only able to send 1,200 soldiers against them, is utilized here to discourage emigration to America. The common people think the Indians are in New Jersey. This is a new and peculiar argument against keeping our army down to a ridiculous figure in the matter of numbers. It is rather a striking one, too. I have not distorted the truth in saying that the facts in the above item about the army and the Indians are made use of to discourage emigration to America that the common people should be rather foggy in their geography, and foggy as to the location of the Indians, is a matter for amusement. Maybe, but not to my surprise. There is an interesting old cemetery in Baden-Baden, and we spent several pleasant hours wandering through it and spelling out the inscriptions on the aged tombstones. Apparently after a man has laid there a century or two, and has had a good many people buried on top of him, it's considered that his tombstone is not needed by him any longer. I judge so from the fact that hundreds of old gravestones have been removed from the graves and placed against the inner walls of the cemetery. What artists they had been in the old times! They chiseled angels and cherubs and devils and skeletons on those tombstones in a most lavish and generous way as to supply but curiously grotesque and outlandish as to form. It's not always easy to tell which of the figures is among the blessed and which of them is among the opposite party. But there was an inscription in French on one of those old stones, which was quaint and pretty and was plainly not the work of any other poet. And it was to this effect. Here reposes in God Caroline de Clary, a religious of St. Denis, age 83 and blind, the light was restored to her in Baden, 5th of January, 1839. We made several excursions on foot to the neighboring villages, over winding and beautiful roads and through enchanted woodland scenery. 
The woods and roads were similar to those at Heidelberg, but not quite so bewitching. I suppose that woods and roads, which are up to the Heidelberg mark, are rare in the world. Once we wandered clear over to La Favorata Palace, which is several miles from Baden-Baden. The grounds about the palace were fine. The palace was a curiosity. It was built by Margravine in 1725 and remains as she left it at her death. We wandered through a great many of its rooms, and they all had striking peculiarities of decoration. For instance, the walls of one room were pretty completely covered with small pictures of the Margravine in all conceivable varieties of fanciful costumes, some of them male. The walls of another room were covered with grotesquely and elaborately figured hand-wrought tapestry. The musty, ancient beds remained in the chambers, and their quilts and curtains and canopies were decorated with curious handwork, and the walls and ceilings frescoed with historical and mythological scenes in glaring colors. There was enough crazy and rotten rubbish in the building to make a true bric-a-bracker green with envy. A painting in the dining hall verged on the indelicate, but then the Margravine herself was a trifle indelicate. It is in every way a wildly and picturesquely decorated house, and brimful of interest as a reflection of the character and tastes of that rude bygone time. In the grounds a few rods from the palace stands the Margravine's chapel, just as she left it, a coarse wooden structure, wholly barren of ornament. It is said that the Margravine would give herself up to debauchery and exceedingly fast living for several months at a time, and then retire to this miserable wooden den and spend a few months in repentance and getting ready for another good time. She was a devout Catholic, and was perhaps quite a model sort of Christian, as Christians went then, in high life. Tradition says she spent the last two years of her life in the strange den I have been speaking of, after having indulged herself in one final triumphant and satisfying spree. She shut herself up there without company and without even a servant, and so abjured and forsook the world. In her little bit of a kitchen, she did her own cooking. She wore a hair shirt next to the skin and castigated herself with whips. These aids to grace are exhibited there yet. She prayed and told her beads in another little room, before a waxen virgin, niched in a little box against the wall. She bettered herself like a slave. In another small room is an unpainted wooden table, and behind it sits a half-life-size wooden figure of the Holy Family, made by the very worst artist that ever lived, perhaps, and clothed in gaudy, flimsy drapery. The Margravine used to bring her meals to this table and dine with the Holy Family. What an idea! What a grisly spectacle it must have been! Imagine those rigid, shock-headed figures with corpsey complexions and fish-glass eyes occupying one side of the table in the constrained attitudes and dead fixedness that distinguish all men that are born of wax, and this wrinkled, smoldering old fire-eater occupying the other side, mumbling her prayers and munching her sausages in the ghostly stillness and shadowy indistinctness of a winter twilight.
makes one feel crawly even to think of it. In this sordid place, and clothed, bedded, and fed like a pauper, the strange princess lived and worshipped during two years, and in it she died. Two or three hundred years ago, this would have made the poor den holy ground, and the church would have set up a miracle factory there and made plenty of money out of it. Even now, the den could be moved into some portion of France and made a good property 